We'll be in Luke 14 again this morning for one last time, and you'll see that on page 8 of your bulletin. And Jesus here, at this point in Luke, turns his attention from the religious leaders to the religious people to challenge them on their commitment to what they believe. And it's a challenge that he makes here that we all should consider. So you young ones, you six, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-olds, maybe some four-year-olds still among us, some of you little ones, Jesus says something here in this little passage, which if you said it at home, and even worse, if you did it at home, you'd get in trouble with mom and dad. So I'll just put that out there for you. Take a look and listen to, the, to this, you young ones, and, and see if you can tell what Jesus is after here when he says this, starting in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be at work in us again this morning and that you would teach us. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, teach us in our minds and our hearts to the depth of our souls, that you would move in us with the power of your word and grant to us humility, grant to us a willingness to Uh, recognize what you are calling us to hear, that each of us might see the ways in which we are to pay a cost to follow you. Help us, Lord, to do that and to follow you and to find life. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Decades ago, when I was in elementary school, it was a long time ago, fourth, fifth grade, I remember my elementary school gym teacher, the PE, physical education teacher, had a habit that he enjoyed at the beginning of our PE class. He liked to line up us young boys, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, on the sideline of the gymnasium before he would uh, um, lead our physical education joy of the day. And he would, would, would uh, regale us with his wisdom. And I don't remember much of that wisdom, and I imagine much of it wasn't very wise. But one of the things he liked to say to us several times a year was this. He said, boys, nothing is certain in life except for death and taxes. That's exactly what an eight-year-old wants to hear in the middle of his day. But then he would tag on to that at the end 
and taxes you can avoid. <laughs> now, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not sure if he had found some loophole that spandex-wearing beer-belly coaches could get in the 1970s, but, you know, I did read about a man in Washington State who claims he's not paid federal income tax in 20 years because of a conscientious objection to some government policy, and yeah, more power to him. I'm not sure how he's done that. I don't imagine he'll be able to avoid that for long. I don't know about evading taxes, but there is one thing that is certain in this life. There is a cost that you cannot avoid, and it's not taxes. It is rather this, that as a human being, you are a religious being. And whatever guiding truth you claim will come at a cost. Now, even the good things that we think of as free in this life and we take for granted as free come with a price. So if you think about it, your good health, it comes with a price. I mean, it's, it's free, as it were, but it comes with a price. You have to pay the price of taking care of yourself with good hygiene and diet and perhaps exercise and maybe doing what your doctor tells you to do. It comes with a price of some sort. Or learning is free. It's, it's a free thing to be a lifetime learner, even if you're not in school, especially if you're not in school. It's free to learn all of your life long. But there's a price that comes with that. It requires some discipline. It requires some effort. It requires some focus. It requires that occasionally you heed the librarian's warning that you're being too loud or that you actually follow after your music teacher's plan if it doesn't seem like it's taking you anywhere. It requires some, some price to pay. And then there's love. Love is free, right? It doesn't cost you money. The love of friends and family, of, of husbands and wives, of children, that love is free, but it comes with a price, doesn't it? There's a pretty steep price to pay for love. You have to yield yourself for the good of those that you love. And so it is with religion. You are a religious being and you have to pay a price for whatever truth you claim. And so here Jesus takes notice of the crowds around him. They are engaged with him at all kinds of different levels. I expect some of them are very devoted to him. They've seen his clashes with the religious leaders and they know that some of those types of clashes might face them in the future and yet they're still there because they're committed to Jesus to a great degree. Many of these people in the crowd, I imagine, are just curious. You know, they've heard that there have been clashes between this rabbi and some other noted religious leaders, and they're curious to come and see the drama. They want to see it unfold. And so Jesus turns to this crowd, and he challenges them. And he offers them the answers to two big questions that every religious person must consider. The first question is, What does it cost to follow Jesus? Now, this is probably not a question many of these people were asking at the time. I expect they were curious. They wanted to see what would happen. But it's a question that they must ask and they must consider. And the answer to it is, it costs more than most are willing to pay. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus challenges these people with, some hyperbole. He's trying to get their attention, and I imagine that he does 
get their attention. He exaggerates for effect. He says to them, to follow me will cost you your closest relationships. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is, of course, hyperbole. The, the hate that Jesus speaks of here is not hate as we would think of it. It can't possibly be, of course. Scripture requires that you love one another, that you love your neighbor as you love yourself, that you honor your father and mother. So, kids, don't take these words literally and take them home and start hating on mom and dad and hating on brother and sister. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. You must love your family. Parents, you must love your children, even when they're teenagers. You must, teenagers, you must love your parents even when they're still parents. This is what Scripture calls you to. But rather, of course, if you follow Jesus, then your love for Him will cause your love for your father and your mother and your husband and your wife, your siblings, to seem like hate in comparison, even if it is love. It's a relative comparison. So it certainly means that, but I would say that it also means something else. There's another degree here that it means. And that is that some people, in fact, maybe many, many people, have to choose between their unbelieving family and Jesus. That's common in this world, and it certainly was even common in Jesus' world. In John chapter 9, you could read John's account of a man who had been born blind, and Jesus heals him, of course, on a Sabbath. I always wonder, how many healings did Jesus perform that weren't on Sabbaths? I imagine there were plenty. We just don't read about as many of them. But this man was healed on a Sabbath, and so that created all kinds of stir and exchange with the religious leaders between them and this man. And it becomes almost comical as they question him on who healed him. And he says, I don't know who it was, but he healed me. He had, some, he had the power of God to heal me, and they complained. Well, he did it on the Sabbath, and no godly person does that on the Sabbath. And the man says, well, I don't know about what your rules are, but the man healed me, and they keep questioning him, and, and he says to them, what, what's wrong? Do you want to be his disciples too? And I, I have to think there's a little bit of sarcasm in the man. And the religious leaders go to the man's parents, and they ask him, was he really born blind? Yes, he was born blind. But what's the deal with this healing? And his parents distance themselves from him because they're afraid of the religious leaders. And they say to them, well, he is of age. He's a grown man. Ask him. We've got nothing to do with that. Because they're afraid of the religious leaders. And this man is cast out by the Pharisees of the synagogue and evidently he's cast out of his own family because his parents are afraid. Some of you have had to face things like that in your life with your own families. And maybe it's been extreme. Maybe it's not been as extreme. And maybe you're just known as the religious nut in your family. Maybe you're the one in the family that that has to give the token prayer at the beginning of the holiday meal because nobody else is willing to do such a religious thing. Or it might be, you know, in some Christian families, even when a son or daughter grows up and begins to decide what they want to do and they decide that they want to actually go into ministry. Sometimes Christian families recoil at that idea. Or if if your daughter grows up and decides she wants to be a pastor's wife and she wants to marry a pastor of all things. 
that can be kind of scary. And sometimes Christian families recoil at that and they begin to divide. Jesus' point here is that following Jesus is greater than your relationships that are outside of Jesus. But I'd also suggest that there's a dimension to this that's a bit more subtle. I would say that not only will it cost you your closest relationships that are outside of Jesus, it'll also cost you in your closest relationships that are inside of Jesus. In other words, if you follow Jesus, then your love for Jesus and the gospel will be greater than your love of false peace. In other words, for the sake of Jesus, you are willing to challenge those that you love. Now, I hope that you have people in your life that are willing to challenge you when you're wrong. I have people in my life who will do that. You know, for a parent of of teenagers, it's always a bit of an uncomfortable joy when the teenager begins to challenge mom and dad in ways that mom and dad have to back up and say, you know, he's right. And I hope there are other people in your life that will challenge you in that sort of way. That's one thing that I will miss, I will tell you publicly about John Berger. John has the gift of discernment, I will tell you. He can, he can see things clearly in ways that many people can't. And he is, in, out of love for Jesus, willing to say difficult things to those that he loves. And I have been the beneficiary of that in our five years together. And I thank you for that, brother. I, I appreciate that. And I'll miss that. He's made me a better pastor because of it. The other elders in our session are, are, are terrific brothers in the same sort of way that will speak things that are difficult, that need to be heard, and yet are risky. And, you know, there's always a risk in doing that kind of thing. I hope that you have people in your life who will do that for you and that you'll do that for other people in your life, but there's a risk because... What if someone like that doesn't respond well to it? Are you willing to risk their anger? Are you willing to risk their hatred, as it were, as Jesus says here, for the sake of following Jesus together? But then Jesus actually turns up the pressure on this cost a bit here. And you know he says that this one will hate father, mother, spouse, brother, sister, etc. And then he adds in this little snippet that's easy to skip over. Yes, and even his own life. Yes, and even this one who follows me will hate his own life. Now, again, this is hyperbole. He's exaggerating for effect because he doesn't want you to hate yourself. Jesus is not interested in self-hatred. He's he's exaggerating for effect. Because the cost of following Jesus is not just making some contribution, but rather it is making a full investment in following him, even at the expense of your own life. So a little story, humor me with this, a little story to illustrate the point. A a chicken and and a pig were friends together, and they decided to go to church one Sunday. And so they walked or waddled or whatever chickens and pigs do down the country lane to the church. And they approached the church, and they saw the sign out front with the sermon title for the morning. The sermon title was, How Shall We Feed the Poor? The pig didn't make much... uh, Interest in this, wasn't too concerned about the title, but the chicken saw it and immediately had an answer. The chicken said to her friend, the pig, she said, hey, I know how we can do this. That, we have the answer. You and I together, we have the answer. The poor, how we feed the poor? We will feed them eggs and bacon. 
And you know how that works out for the pig. The pig wasn't real interested in that solution. But you see the difference. You know, one of them is just going to make a contribution. One of them is going to make a full investment. Not only will following Jesus cost you in your relationships, it will cost you your own life. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we, in our day and culture, we we wear crosses as jewelry and we decorate churches uh, with crosses and that's all fine and good. It's 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 an acknowledgement of your faith. And that's a wonderful thing, but we need to not allow it to soften the blow of what a cross is. When Jesus said, you must bear your cross, of course, he wasn't telling them to wear a necklace. He was telling them much more serious. Because these Israelites living in a Roman world knew that to bear a cross meant to go to your own death. That's just what it meant in their day, in their place. These Jews had seen hundreds, probably thousands of their own people crucified along the roadsides of this Roman Empire because of what they believed. And they knew what a cross meant. They knew that a cross was made of rough-hewn and splintered wood that one had to carry on the way to their own death. And so what does it mean to bear your cross? Well, it's symbolic I mean, for many it's not, for many it's literal, but it certainly is symbolic in our own lives. But what does it mean? How do we bear our own cross? Does it mean that you should leave your secular job? Maybe your job pays you too much, and so it's become unspiritual. Should you just leave your secular job and sell all your possessions and move to the third world and suffer uh, diseases and and horrible weather and, and lack of food and all those things? Maybe you should just do that. Well, I don't want to make too light of that. There are people that God calls to do such things, but many Christians have done such things, and we call them monks. We call them ascetics, people who subject themselves to severe discipline, self-inflicted trouble and deprivation in search of greater spirituality. And the, the reality is in history, such self-flagellation has never freed anyone from their own troubles because they take their own troubles into their asceticism. No, rather to bear your own cross means to put yourself to death. It's much, much harder than just being a monk. It's far more difficult. Paul describes it in Colossians 3. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. He doesn't mean being passionate about something, but he means, he means um, self-centered, sexual, indulgent passions. Put these things to death. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying, and all of its deceptions. He says, put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of God. This is what it means to bear your cross. It would be much easier A much lesser cost, in fact, if you could just throw yourself into some spiritual work day and night and neglect your health and neglect your family and neglect all that's around you except for the spiritual work ahead of you. But the problem with that is it would never be enough, probably, if you have some humility about you. Or if you don't, 
You might think that it's enough, and then you would begin to say to God, God, now you owe me. Because look at all that I've done. I've suffered for you, and now you owe me. No, to, to bear your own cross means that you love Christ more than you love your own life. You're willing to serve. You're willing to suffer. I recently visited with a friend of a friend who, knowing that I am a pastor, he asked me, people ask you about your, what's your church. He asked me, what draws people to your church? Why, why do you think people come to your church? And I gave an answer. I guess in hindsight, maybe I kind of regret the answer I gave him, but it was a typical answer. I said, I don't know, I'm trying to get into people's minds. I'm not quite sure, but, but I think people come because they enjoy the worship style. The music is well done, and they appreciate that. They like that it's a smaller church where they can know each other, maybe. They like the youth group. They like things like that. And those are all good things. But I realize in hindsight, all those things kind of have a consumer element to them. You know, as, as Christians, we, we think of our churches in terms of what we can get from them. And I've mentioned this to you before. That's often the way we, we think of it. But I wish that I had said instead, which would not have been untrue of you, People come to our church because they know that we need them. People come to our church because they see how they can serve each other in our church. People come to our church because they see people who need them to be friends with them. People come to our church because they want to bear their own cross and follow Jesus. That's why people come. I know a family here in Dallas who, for some years, they helped with a church plant when their children were young. And then they went and helped with another church plant while their children became teenagers. And then for a brief time, they considered possibly coming here to our church, but then they decided instead to go to another church plant because that church plant did not have a family like theirs with teenagers like they had. I have so much respect for that. It's a remarkable picture of a family giving themselves for the good of their church, for the good of their brothers and sisters. Suffering, as it were, bearing a cross for the sake of following Jesus. Verse 28, Jesus illustrates this whole picture with a parable. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's got enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him because he couldn't finish what he started. It's a parable, of course, and he's talking about someone building a tower, probably a watchtower over their private land for security purposes. And he says, nobody's going to do that reasonably without sitting down first and carefully evaluating whether they can finish the job. Now, the point is the same in regard to following Jesus. He says, do you understand what following me means? Do you understand what it will cost you? Martin Luther, I understood, I understand, said these words. He's very Martin Luther-like. He said, A faith that gives nothing, that costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. If you follow Jesus, it will cost you in your relationships, and it will cost you your own life. But then the second question, what does it cost to not follow Jesus? The answer is, more than you are able to pay. Verse 31 begins with a very big, important word. It's the word or. And when you come across an or, usually it's paired with an either somewhere preceding it. 
right? And even if it's not actually there, it's implicitly there. And I would suggest to you that that's the case here. Either you pay the cost to follow Jesus or you pay the cost to not follow Jesus. And not following Jesus will cost you an audience with a king that you cannot conquer. Verse 31, he tells another part of a parable. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 soldiers, that is, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 soldiers. So here's a king going out to war. He knows another king is coming, coming towards him. And he says, this little king is going to sit down and deliberate. He's going to sit down and think about it. He's going to measure himself and see, do I have a chance against this king who's coming? It's just common sense. And in any parable, right, there are, there are characters that represent something bigger than themselves. And so there are two kings here. There's a king with 20,000 troops. Who is that? That's God. And there's a king with 10,000 troops. Who's that? That's us. That's us. This parable illustrates a prevailing narrative of Scripture that you'll find from Genesis to Revelation that a, a big king is coming, and he's coming to conquer. You heard that text from Joshua earlier this morning. It's a, it's a beautiful and, and interesting text. Joshua is on the verge of leading the Israelites into the Promised Land, into Canaan, and before he does, he comes across a mysterious man on the path who is evidently an intimidating-looking warrior. And so Joshua challenges him with a question. He says to this warrior, he didn't recognize him, didn't look like one of his own. He says, are you for us or are you for them? And the warrior's answer is no. It wasn't a yes or no question. No. Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. I'm not for you, I'm not for them. I am for myself because I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua falls to the ground and he he begins to worship this commander. And he's right to do so. He speaks up again. He asks this commander, "What, what shall I do? And the commander says to him, take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. What that means is this wasn't just some soldier. This was God. This was the angel of the Lord. Some would say the second person of the Trinity incarnate before the incarnation, standing there before Joshua because God came in war to conquer Canaan for his own glory. And so also he comes to conquer you. Your old self with its practices and to put it to death. Now you may object to God being like this. This may seem to you imposing and uncomfortable and if it does, then, then I'd ask you, do you have a family member? Have you ever known a family member that you wish were different? I imagine you do. And just by wishing that they were different, did that make them different? Nope. It never does. Nor does it with God. This is who God is, and just because you wish he were different doesn't make him any different. This is the God of Scripture. This is the one that the Bible shows to us he is a king with 20,000 troops or with 100,000 troops or a million troops or countless troops. In other words, he's the one who's holy and righteous and just and good and true. And he's coming in war to conquer you. 
And have you sat down to deliberate before he gets there? Have you considered your 10,000 troops, that is, your self-righteousness and your super-spiritual monkery? Have you considered your judgmental sort of, I have done more than those people have done at least, or I'm not as bad as those people are at least, types of attitudes? And have you considered, is that much defense when this king arrives? Have you considered how that will match up to the king who's coming to conquer? It is an either-or proposition. It really is. Either you pay the cost to follow Jesus or you pay the cost not to. When I was in seminary, I took a hospital chaplaincy class. I think I've told you this story before. And one of the requirements was that you spend one night in the hospital as the chaplain on call. And about 3 a.m., I got a call. And a woman had died, and her husband was on the way up to the hospital, and I was to intercept him and meet him and, and, and offer my counsel to him. And I did so. I found him coming out of the elevator, and I told him who I was and could I help. And he answered very quickly and without much feeling. He said, oh, no thanks. We're not religious. And I have grieved the memory of that ever since. I know that happens every day countless times with people. Many people think that being religious is optional. But everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. Everyone makes judgments about truth. Everyone's religious. But there's only one king who declares truth. And so it will cost you an audience before this king. But also, not following Jesus will cost you what you do not yet have. Verse 33, by implication, Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has... He cannot be my disciple. If you don't follow Jesus, it will cost you everything that you don't yet have. If you're going to follow Jesus, then you must renounce all that you do have. Which certainly means material possessions and your dependence on those things as your hope and your comfort. It also means that you must renounce your great accomplishments that justify your self-existence. It means that you must renounce your pet projects that establish your self-righteous judgment of other people around you. All that you do have may seem to you in many ways like it is of great value. But is that really as good as it gets? Is that all? I mean, that's all that you have. And is that as good as it's going to ever get? No, it's not. Because the gospel promises that any who give up All that they have in this life will be rewarded a hundredfold, a millionfold by God himself in the kingdom yet to come. Not following Jesus will cost you an audience with the king and it will cost you all that you don't yet have. And it will also cost you, lastly, all that you are meant to be. Verse 34, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. If you spread salt, Jesus, of course, using another another word picture here, a metaphor. If you spread salt on soil, it's like poison. Nothing will grow unless the salt is old and stale and has lost its saltiness. And then grass and weeds will grow again. And if you spread salt on a manure pile, I believe this is what they did in the ancient world, 
It was a catalyst for compost. It would help the manure change form and, and compost and become something useful unless that salt was old and stale and then it had no effect on the manure pile either. Israel, to whom Jesus is speaking, this crowd, Israel was to be, by God's design, salt of the earth. They were to season the world for God's plan of redemption. That was their role. And so also, every human being is designed by God to be, as we say, salt of the earth. To work, to transform a broken world into something that has life. That's what you're called to do as a human being, as a religious character. That's what you're called to do, to be salt of the earth. I mean, think of all that Christians have done to bring life to this world in history. We don't even have begin to be, time to begin to summarize all of that, but education in this country, at least all the Ivy League schools, all but one, and even that one's a little bit questionable, all but one of them were started by Christians for the point of propagating the gospel. All of them were established for education by Christians who recognized that saltiness in the world, and yet over the course of decades they've lost their salt. What about science? Think of all the scientists in history. There are many, many of them. Pascal and Copernicus and Galileo and Isaac Newton and and many others who, who credited their scientific work to the glory of God, and yet Nowadays, many scientists don't want anything to do with such salt. Or health care. Do you know that, that until Christianity began to spread in the Roman Empire, hospitals were pretty much a thing for the military to recoup the soldiers, to, to help them to recover for the, for the, the, the conquering efforts of the, of the empire. But when Christians began to, to become more numerous... Uh, civilian hospitals began to spring up because Christians, out of their compassion, out of their saltiness, recognized the need for hospitals to care for people and their, their welfare. You are designed by God to be salt that transforms this broken world into life. But if you don't follow Jesus, then you will lose the taste with which you were made for this world. There's a little little hint of... of gospel hope in what Jesus says here, which is interesting to see. I want you to see it in verse, verse 32. He's told this parable about the king who's sitting down to deliberate if he should go out against this bigger king. In verse 32, he says, If he's not big enough, then while the other, the bigger one, is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Basically, he goes out with the white flag and he raises the surrender flag and he says, Hey, guys, you're going to whoop us. Have mercy. And let us live, we'll do what you want. Guess who has sent the delegation of peace? The big king has. The big king has already sent his delegation of peace, his son Jesus incarnate in the flesh, in the form of a humble child, of a man preaching peace and preaching redemption and preaching that, that all should turn and follow him Back to the big king where they will find life rather than judgment. The big king has sent his delegation and has offered you terms of peace in Jesus. Now, you may just wish that God didn't care. You may, you may wish that God would just, he's out there, whatever, he can just leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. But the fact is, he does. You can't change that by wishing that. He does care. 
And so there is a great cost that you cannot avoid. He has sent his delegation of peace to you. So follow him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we pray that you would help us to see these things and believe. We pray that you'd work in all of us humility and a willingness to yield ourselves to you, to recognize that you are the king who comes to conquer and that you, with your conquering power, will, in fact, conquer. And yet you've sent to us your delegation of peace. We pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize that and to believe in Jesus, the one that you have sent, so that we might find life in him. In his name we pray. Amen.